If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, filling in for Jason Palmer this week. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The Middle East and North Africa have so far been spared the worst of COVID-19, with the terrible exception of Iran. Across the region, astonishingly tight restrictions are in force, but will authoritarian regimes loosen their grip when the health crisis passes? And African art is enjoying a golden age, encompassing artists in all mediums from across the continent. Auctions, online, naturally, are attracting more interest than ever. We report on a boom that seems likely to last. But first... Yesterday, the USNS Comfort slowly made its way around the Statue of Liberty to dock in New York City's harbour. With 12 operating rooms and a 1,000 hospital beds, the enormous Navy hospital ship has been hailed as a beacon of hope for a beleaguered city. The arrival of Comfort, this is like adding a whole nother hospital to New York City. It's like, think of all the big hospitals in New York City, Bellevue and all the other uh, famous hospitals we think of. It's like another one of them just floated right up to help us right now. Although the ship won't be treating coronavirus patients, it's meant to add hospital capacity to a city that's rapidly become the global centre of the pandemic. New York State has had 7% of the world's cases in recent days and more than 1,200 deaths, with most of those infections and fatalities in the city itself. I think it's important for the rest of the nation to watch New York because we are really the canary in the coal mine. We're just the the first test case of this. The response has been divided on city, state and federal lines, with an increasingly fractious relationship between Governor Andrew Cuomo and President Donald Trump, who at first complained when Mr Cuomo asked for help. He threatened to quarantine the region, though ultimately didn't go that far. The president has continued to criticise New York's preparations, but he has been moved by desperate scenes from the neighbourhood where he grew up, Queens. I've been watching that for the last week on television. Body bags all over in hallways. I've been watching them bring in trailer trucks, freezer trucks, they're freezer trucks, because they can't handle the bodies. There's so many of them. This is in my, essentially in my community, in Queens, Queens, New York. Elmhurst Hospital is one of the city's 11 public hospitals. On a normal day, it's where you want to go if you get shot. It's very good at trauma and triage. Now it's the epicenter of the epicenter, as President Trump calls it. Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent. The queue begins before the sun is up, people waiting to be tested. Staff report shortages of masks, gloves, gowns and ventilators. Normally it operates pretty close to capacity, about 85%, and now it's over 125%. On a single day last week, 13 people died of the COVID virus. 
Rosemary, that's a very vivid picture of what it's like at the hospital at the centre of all this in the city. But how have authorities at different levels responded to the outbreak so far? It's been a mixed bag. At the federal level, Mr. Trump has been erratic, as usual. But on the state level, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, I mean, he's been fantastic. His press briefings have become must-see TV, not just in New York, but across the country. His blunt assessments of the situation delivered in his strong Queen's accent are actually comforting. And he paints a really bleak picture at times of the need for help and how dire it is about to be. And on the city level, the mayor, Bill de Blasio, he dithered far too long in deciding to close down the city. First the schools, along with Broadway shows, pubs and restaurants, and other crowd attractive places. But I have to say, in his defense, he's long been banging the drum of how serious this outbreak is. So I guess that adds up to different messages, varying degrees of competence, and a degree of mutual distrust between the three levels of government. What effect has all that had on the actual response on the ground? Well, first, it delayed testing quite a bit, which means it's hard to get a full picture of how bad it is. And also uh, on a larger level, you know, the state and the city is competing with other states and other countries for equipment. So you could be competing with France for a ventilator. Governors can't force people to manufacture equipment. That can only be done at the federal level. And that might actually be starting to happen. It seems that the city and the state need more than they can generate from their own resources to deal with this crisis. So does it look now as if there's more help on the way? Thankfully, yes. Last week on March 27th, Mr. Trump signed a $2 trillion stimulus bill. And some of that money will come to New York, though Mr. de Blasio, the mayor, tweeted and said in a press briefing that it wasn't enough. In fact, he called the amount of money coming immoral. But other good news is coming. The president evoked rarely used powers to compel General Motors, a car maker, to produce ventilators. The Army Corps of Engineers are building temporary hospitals, including one at the city's big convention center. Samaritan's Purse, uh, a Christian charity that has helped set up temporary hospitals in Italy, is erecting a field Aww. hospital in Manhattan Central Park, which is just bizarre to see, but it will help with the overflow at nearby Mount Sinai Hospital. The city and state both asked retired and private healthcare workers to help if they can. And rather movingly, 62,000 people have volunteered so far, including you know, older doctors and nurses, medical students. And Mr. Cuomo has ordered that public and private hospitals now work as a single system so that staff and patients can be transferred as needed. And also in the state, you know, most of the outbreak has hit the city and its suburbs, but upstate has more resources. So the governor suggested that perhaps staff and patients can move upstate and downstate as needed as well. Now Mr Cuomo has warned that New York is the canary in the coal mine. Authorities in other states must be looking at what's going on in New York. How is it affecting their response to the crisis? Well, some states are seeing New York as a harbinger of what's going to come to them and have been using New York as a model. Some are reacting badly. Rhode Island's governor, Gina Raimondo, a Democrat, is so fearful of New Yorkers 
with summer homes or renting homes in her state that she has ordered her state police and the National Guard to stop cars with New York license plates and going door to door to some homes where New Yorkers are known to be to make sure that they quarantine themselves. She apparently has stepped back from that after talking to New York's governor. New York's governor threatened to sue if she continued to do that. Florida is still doing it. If they see a New York license plate on the highway, they stop them and make sure that they're quarantining themselves when they get to their destination. So as good as New York and New Jersey, California's responses have been, other states have been slower to close schools and to shut non-essential businesses and impose limits on bars and restaurants. Funnily enough, it's states with Democratic governors have been quicker to declare these emergencies and shutdowns. It's difficult to have a, a single national response because the messaging is so different on the state and the federal and local level. And meanwhile, Rosemary, last question. What's New York like for you as New Yorker? How does the city compare with the place that it usually is? I live quite close to Elmhurst Hospital, so walking home from it is very eerie. Businesses are closed. Uh, There's no children playing on the streets or in the park. No one's riding the subway. Ridership is down by 90%. There's no cabs in Manhattan. They are parked in the driveways in my neighborhood in Queens. The bodega across the street from where I live stayed open during Sandy, the hurricane that hit the city in 2012. It's closed. So it's really, it's a really weird place to be right now. Everyone knows someone who is sick or waiting results. So it's, it's very, very surreal. Rosemary, thanks very much for your time. All right, thank you, Patrick. Stay well. You too. To get a lot more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist trusted source of information and, well, intelligence for 175 years. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Bulb issues for $12 or £12. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. COVID-19 has not yet hit the Middle East and North Africa as hard as the rest of the world. Excluding Iran, where an outbreak is raging, the virus has killed just over 200 people in the region. That's if you believe the official numbers. But countries are bracing themselves for an upsurge in cases. The immediate policy priority of the region is to protect the population from the coronavirus. Government should not spare any expense to ensure that health systems and social safety nets are adequately prepared to meet the needs of their populations. Arab leaders have been taking drastic steps to curb the spread of the coronavirus, imposing curfews, closing businesses and quarantining cities. This is wise. Countries that delayed action were overwhelmed. But it's also troubling in a region where governments have long played on people's fears to justify authoritarian rule. 
Now, some of these regimes are clamping down in ways not seen in the West, and there are concerns that once the crisis is over, they won't be willing to loosen their grip. It's absolutely the case that governments all around the world are taking very robust measures, and that's a smart thing to do. We've seen what happens when countries delay action. Nick Pelham is Middle East correspondent at The Economist. So governments in the Middle East have been particularly keen to get off the mark early. Some of the measures we've seen have been so absolutely astonishing. I guess that they're trying to prove that state security and authoritarian rule can actually deliver in times of danger like this. And they're trying to show that they can prevent a spiralling rate of infection in a way that perhaps lax democracies have failed to do and have allowed the virus to seep in. They're trying to show that their system works and that authoritarian rule is really best for the people of the Middle East. You say some of these measures have been astonishing. What exactly are we seeing in some of these countries? I mean, we've seen a sort of return to heavy emergency measures, in some cases sort of verging on martial law. Jordan has introduced a very draconian defence law, which provides for enforcement of an absolute lockdown. Curfews brought in by sirens. We've seen very heavy restrictions on the media. There's been sort of roundup of people who are accused of rumour-mongering in Morocco In Egypt, they've been deploying the army to try and sanitise and disinfect public places. And we've really seen the kind of crackdown on all the mass protests that we were seeing that characterised much of the region from Algeria all the way over to Iraq and sort of via Lebanon. Those have pretty much fizzled out. So we're seeing really heavy security powers come in. They're unveiled as temporary, but, you know, they could be open-ended and they could very much be serving broader agendas here on in. And along with those measures, have any of the region's governments actually been exploiting the pandemic? There have certainly been accusations of such in uh, Israel. The Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's in charge of a caretaker government after a, an inconclusive election, he's postponed all non-urgent court hearings, including his trial on corruption charges. His loyal speaker of the Knesset, Yuli Edelstein, prevented the formation of a committee which was overseeing the parliamentary agenda, in effect enabling Mr Netanyahu to rule by decree. And indeed, he's now resigned rather than enforce a Supreme Court order to reactivate the Knesset. Elsewhere in Iraq, the uh, president there, Baham Saleh, has nominated a new uh, prime minister um, who was opposed by many of the powerful parliamentary factions just as the curfew began. And in Saudi Arabia, the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman has timed another purge of his court with a closure of government offices to contain the virus. And how have these measures been going down with the people in these countries? Have they protested against them at all? Yeah, it's not really possible to protest when you've got what it is in effect martial law. But I mean, astonishingly, actually, rather than take to the streets, as far as we can gauge from opinion polls, people have been welcoming these measures. And it's really kind of a reinforcement of the security that an authoritarian order brings in a time when people feel really exposed and under threat. So we've seen kind of hashtags trending in Arabic across the region, sort of declare a state of emergency. We've seen intellectuals who are normally accustomed to berating abuses of civil liberties, praise strong-arm tactics. And I mean, it's astonishing. I've been calling up human rights monitors expecting to hear condemnation of some of the draconian measures that have been introduced. I'm hearing the precise reverse and actually enthusiasm for what governments are doing to protect public health. Now, in most of these countries, the number of infections is still pretty low, isn't it? With the obvious and terrible exception of Iran, of course. Do you expect people in the region will continue to support their governments as the pandemic gathers strength? 
That is the great unknown. Certainly in the short term, it looks as if governments are getting a boost in their legitimacy and popular support by the measures that they're taking. And as long as numbers remain low, I think you can expect to see public support remain high. What happens though when you get to a stage where health services are going to be overwhelmed? You know, If, as WHO, the UN's health agency expects, these numbers do start to rise dramatically, You've seen much less money go into public health and welfare than has gone into the security forces. And people are going to start asking questions about, you know, why, if these security measures fail, their government has done so little to protect them. It sounds as if healthcare systems might really be overwhelmed if COVID-19 starts to take hold. But what about the region's economies? How well prepared are they for what's coming? The whole world is facing a, a global downturn and that's going to have a dramatic impact on the Middle East. We're already seeing tourism growing to a halt. That was a kind of mainstay for many of the economies of, of the region. Remittances are down and critically, all prices plummeted and revenues are sharply down. It's not clear at all that all rich countries which used to bail out the poorer ones in the Middle East are going to be able to do so in the future. We're seeing rising unemployment. I think Israel expects to see half a million job losses by the end of the month. Much of the region works in the informal sector where there's just no protection at all. So you're going to see you know, real intense suffering without a broad base of welfare to protect a population. And that's going to raise serious questions about how the population will respond if indeed numbers of those who are infected rise dramatically. Could that be why governments are already cracking down so hard that they're worried about the reaction further down the line? I think there is great concern amongst authoritarian regimes that if security measures don't work, they've got precious little else to try and protect the population. And at some point, those security systems, instead of just protecting the population as a whole, might be needed to protect themselves. Pandemics can bring significant change. We've seen that historically. And there is a concern amongst regimes in the region that they're not going to be immune from that change, particularly if the virus starts to infect the very security systems themselves. You know, we've seen from Iran to Egypt, generals fall to the virus. It's quite likely that it's infected many conscripts as well. And there is going to be a question mark just as to how secure these security systems are themselves once the virus really takes hold in the Middle East. So all in all, you know, I mean, these regimes rely on stability and we're entering really unstable times. Nick, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it is swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. Two weeks ago, as Britain was shutting down over coronavirus concerns, it's perhaps no surprise that an auction at Bonhams in London saw just four people attend in person. Online, it was a different story. Over 150 people logged on to bid for a piece of African contemporary art. By the time the gavel came down, a gallery had paid five times the top estimate for a series of photographs showing images from post-war South Africa. And that sale wasn't an anomaly. This is very much a golden age of art in Africa, from Senegal to Kenya, from South Africa up to Morocco. Fiametta Rocco is The Economist's culture correspondent. And their work is characterised by a sort of funny mixture of incredible energy, great use of colour, very, 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 very vivid, but they're also subversive, they're funny, 
These are artists who are really ready to take on the world. What explains the rise in demand for African art? Why have we seen such a shift over the past few years? Well, the first time that artists from Africa and Asia were given equal billing to Western painters and sculptors was at an exhibition in Paris in 1989 called Magicien de la Terre, the Magicians of the Earth. And there was a man called Johnny Pigozzi. He was the heir to French motoring fortune. He went to this exhibition the last afternoon that it was on, and it completely changed his life. He hired the curator of the show. He committed himself to creating a great, great African collection. And he spent the next 20 years doing this. He never went to Africa himself. He sent the curator, André Magnin, with cash and paints. And he nurtured a whole generation of artists, particularly in Congo and Cameroon, the rest of Francophone Africa. And his collection remains probably the best that's ever been made. What happened to the African art scene after Johnny Pigotti got involved? After him, things moved slowly. There were very, very, very few people collecting. But there was a couple of specialised galleries, both in London and in New York. Then you had the 154 Art Fair happened and galleries would come together. Artworks were being presented in one place. It began to draw in collectors. Museums who were quite slow on this, even museums like Tate and the Museum of Modern Art in New York, finally got together their acquisitions committees. So slowly, slowly, slowly it began to move. And then it really took off. And I think one of the reasons why it took off is that you started to get interest from collectors within Africa. So the Pigotsis and the people like him who had been in the first generation are now regularly outbid by collectors on the continent themselves. And what's the effect been of rising prices on the market for African art? Well, interesting, rising prices in other markets always squeezes out certain collectors, people who don't have as much money as others to spend. But one of the extraordinary things that we're seeing about Africa is that high prices are sending young people into the attics of their parents and their grandparents to see what it is that they bought in the 40s and 50s. And there's a great Nigerian artist uh, called Benedict Nwanwu, who uh, we've now had two cases Uh, First of all, uh, last year, a beautiful portrait of Christine, who was a a friend of Inwanwu's wife, um, came out of an attic in Texas, sold for just over a million pounds. Before that, uh, a long-lost portrait of Adetufu Ademiliu, who was a, a Nigerian princess, was found in a flat in London where its owner, who had never even heard of the artist, approached Bonhams for advice. This is a painting that is known as the African Mona Lisa and it sold to Axis Bank for £1.2 million. Is this rise in demand for an appreciation of African art a short-term trend, do you think, or is there a real long-term shift going on here? I think it's a long-term shift. I don't think we're going to see this go back anymore. There is demand... Um, abroad. There is demand in America. There is demand of people who specialise in African-American collections who also now want to collect African art. I don't think this is going to go away. Fiametta, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Patrick. 
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. See you back here tomorrow. If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.